Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring the question, are Waldorf schools religious? And as we'll speak about in this episode, this is a complex topic, and I hope that I can bring you more clarity by the end of the episode. Speaking with me today is Glenn Graham. Glenn actually was a guest back in episode 101, and she has 30 years of experience teaching in a Waldorf classroom. For the most part, people find the path of becoming a Waldorf teacher in one of two ways. One is becoming an educator or having interest in becoming a teacher and then finding Waldorf education as a means to teach from a more holistic approach. And the other is being on a path of spiritual discovery, first finding anthroposophy as a means to that path, and then becoming interested in Waldorf education as a vocation. Probably most teachers would fall into that first category, but today's guest, Glenn, actually falls into the latter. Thank you so much for sitting down with me again, Glenn. We had you for uh, the very first episode of Waldorf Education, which was received so well. So thank you again for sitting down with me. This is a big question to cover. Um, Are Waldorf schools religious is, is a tougher topic, but honestly, it was exactly the kind of thing that I wanted to tackle when I came up with the idea of Waldorfy. Personally, when I Googled, are Waldorf schools religious, I found lots of info and so much of it really confusing. And today I'm excited to pursue this question with you. So as this is such a confusing topic, could you answer this question clearly or as clearly as you can? Are Waldorf schools religious? It is a confusing topic. And I think that is because we don't really know what we mean by religious. You know, there's many different levels of that question. Do they teach religious doctrine, religious prayers to the children? And so that level of the question is fairly easy to answer. And that's simply really no, no religious doctrine, no particular religious prayer, no particular denomination of religious priest, rabbi, guru, etc., are referred to, are needed. The teachers are free to be any religion they want. The culture of the children and the religion of the children is never discussed in an ongoing way. Or, you know, there's certain moments in the curriculum, like in the third grade, where the Old Testament is the focus of the stories, where some of the Jewish festivals may be celebrated. There's certain moments in the fifth grade where the Hindu festivals may be celebrated, but not in a religious sense, really. It's a cultural sense. So on that surface level of the question of religion, I can easily say, no, there isn't, Waldorf schools are not religious, and that children won't come out of there with a particular religious bias in any way. So the other part of the question of religious is more one of the universal quality of religious, which doesn't pertain to a particular religion. And if you mean by our world of schools religious, do they have that universal quality of seeing the world, seeing the children, seeing all human beings as having a side of them that is beyond the material and beyond what we can see physically with our eyes, then I would say yes, 
we do try to foster in the child and prolong in the child that innate feeling that they come with of unity with the world and of wonder and of reverence. And we feel out of the knowledge of anthroposophy that that is a healthy way for children to grow. So the teachers will, I could say on purpose, design their stories and their verses to encourage in the children kindness, reverence, wonder, compassion, all those universal qualities that really every single religion in the world ascribes to and also fosters. So from that point of view, yes, Waldorf schools are religious, but they don't, again, just to be really clear, they don't subscribe to or belong to any particular worldly outward religion with no sacred text, no church, no priest, etc. Yeah, I have a memory, I guess, of being in the earlier grades, maybe first or second grade, listening to a fairy tale in first grade or a fable in second grade, where the teacher would tell us a story and the story would often have a moral. It's good you brought that up because the stories do actually, all those stories, the fairy tales, all the mythology, you're probably thinking of some of the fables or the stories of um, great people that overcame their own difficulties, which we refer to in our tradition as saints. But really, it's any person who overcame their lower nature and did good in the world. Um, they do have morals, but and they told in a very matter-of-fact way to the children so they can, as you said, see the results of uh, kind and good actions as opposed to selfish, greedy actions. All of those and the verses are, are said and told without religious instruction. They told so that the children in a very matter-of-fact way observe the characters. With their feeling life, the children are supposed to fall in love with the good people and be horrified at the wicked people. But there isn't ever pressure and instruction on that. It's more left in the feeling life of the child so they can take that in and just live with it. It's not brought into concepts in the elementary school. Right. And I know kind of earlier you were mentioning that what you're trying to do as the teacher is not, uh, when we talk about the word religion or even the word spiritual, which is in many, for many people is as loaded as religious, I guess, what you're trying to foster through stories or verses, which we'll talk a little bit about later, is you mentioned kind of a reverence or devotion or caring, kindness. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Um, yes. So, you know, if you've ever observed, or if you haven't, please do, a little child, really from when they're born, the way they look out into the world with big, wide eyes, ex really expecting beauty and goodness and kindness. They come to the grown-ups in their lives with complete and utter trust that they will be cared for and taught how to live, shown, not even taught, shown by the actions of the grown-ups around them, how to live in the world. When they often 
little children, when they see somebody else get hurt, they cry. If they experience tension or something in the air that upsets them, because they are attuned to goodness and beauty and wonder and all those things in the world. So to foster that quality in the children by stories and verses and examples of the teacher is, I would say, really a grown-up's mandate, whether you're a parent or whether you are a teacher, to help the child um, develop that as a real strength. And so that serves them later. Obviously, as they get older, they're going to come across the negative stuff in the world. They're going to come across the the greed and the selfishness and the fear, etc., of pretty much all of us grown-ups in the world. But it's like if if it's like having a plant in a greenhouse. You only plant them outside in the world when they're strong and big enough to deal with the wind and the hail and the rain. And then they can still grow strong with that inner surety that there's something good in the world that they can seek and serve. And they, those are universal qualities. I can't imagine how anybody would say, please don't teach my child compassion. Please don't show my child an example of care for the earth. And that's what I mean by reverence. I don't mean going down on your knees and prostrating yourself. I, meaning, I mean care for the earth, care for other people. And the children experience their teachers, hopefully, looking at them in that way, looking at them with wonder and reverence. Who is this child that I now have the mandate to teach? What are they going to become? What do they know that I don't know? Rather than he has part of the future workforce, for instance. Yeah, what I'm hearing from you is actually, I think, a really good place or example of where this question gets kind of confusing for people because it is, as we're talking about anthroposophy or as Waldorf education is, it's not, it, we say it's not religious, but when you look at all world religions, they are all working to help cultivate in culture and humanity these same qualities, right? Kindness, compassion, um, reverence, and specifically with direct, I guess, religious instruction or teaching, that's reverence for God, the word God or your belief in God. And what you're, when you're using the word reverence, I like how you gave that specific example of reverence of others and being caring and compassionate or reverence for the world around us and how we, you know, for instance, treat the environment. So these are kind of, you know, words that I feel like have association that's really broad. So that was really helpful. I think that you're specific there. And more than that, it's reverence and devotion and all those things, um, separate from a particular religious doctrine. It's basically out of being human. You mentioned, uh, we've just talked about kindness, uh, devotion, reverence, compassion. How do you go about cultivating that in the student? Well, that's the tricky part because you have to remember every single teacher is different. And every teacher comes with their own uh, striving for that. Anthroposophy has a particular path of striving, and teachers may or may not dive into that more or less deeply. But there are certain um, techniques that teachers use. And the first one, which I think probably does cause a lot of confusion and make parents wonder if their children are being... Um, indoctrinated, 
Um, and that is the morning verse. So there is a morning verse that was given by Rudolf Steiner for the lower school and then another one for the middle and upper school that, depending on the translation, may or may not reference God or sometimes the creator spirit. Most often it is the creator spirit, which is a more general description. Um, but even God sometimes is said and Again, that does not refer to the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament or the um, the God of the Quran. It's, again, more the universal creator spirit whose energy is behind the whole world. So the morning verse is a beginning of each day and the children would stand with their teacher. Sometimes they look out the window. Sometimes they're just standing tall and straight. And it's a kind of tuning in together of the class. Um I'll give you a little example. Oh, great. I think that'll make it clearer. An example of the verse from grades one through four, for instance. I'm going to read just the first few lines to give you a sense of how it refers to the world outside and the world inside, meaning outside of the human being and inside the human being, the heart, the soul. And then... I'll also read the first few lines of the upper school verse, which talks about the same thing, because I think that's important that there is the inner and the outer. And in some ways, I suppose that is a religious concept, the fact that the human being has their own inner, you could say, sacred space. The sun with loving light makes bright for me this day. The soul with spirit power gives strength unto my limbs. That's the lower school version. Is that the whole verse? That's just the first four lines. After that, um, well, since you ask, I'll tell you a little more about it. After that, the verse goes on to give thanks to the creator spirit for human strength that has been planted in our souls. And then it ends with that I, with all my might, may love to work and learn. From thee, creator spirit, stream light and strength. To thee rise love and thanks. So that's an expression of devotion, gratitude, I suppose you could say. So where you used uh, the word creator spirit is Steiner's original text. Uh, to hit the original trans translation would say God there? I believe so. Um, it would be to the, well, in this one, it would be I, um, it's really tricky because of the German to English translation. So there's various different English translations because Steiner sometimes made up words. Right, which perhaps could lead to a lot of confusion about this topic we're talking about right now. It could lead to a lot of confusion. And uh, some of the translations would be something like in the middle there where I give thanks to thee would be I with reverence, O oh God, the, the strength of humankind, which thou so graciously has planted in my soul. And there's many different translations of those few lines, but it is really directly giving thanks, expressing gratitude to God, creator spirit for, um, for the strength that we have, and then asking for further strength and joy for learning. Right. I just kind of wanted to bring 
this, what we're talking about back to, I guess, a specific example, because what we're talking about is such an adult way of breaking it down. I just want to point that out for everybody listening. For me, um, as a child, I have very clear memories of the main lesson blocks, especially first grade, second grade, and third grade, and what it felt like to say a verse like this in the morning and what it meant to me in my day. So uh, I actually mentioned to my teacher when I was in the earlier grades, Arthur Auer, who's so fantastic. I mentioned to him as an adult, I said, wow, I must've been really your most annoying student. And he said in the most lovely way, oh, you were really spirited. That's how he described me. So I was kind of always my eyes out the window and wanted to jump around and play outside and very active and very kind of distracted in my energy. And the morning verse really was such a an awakening for me in my own little body. That's really the way I took it every day. And the way we're breaking down these words is so over the head of a small child. And I do think that's a point where people can be so confused that there's this, like, I guess, rumor or confusion around this, this, what we're talking about being indoctrinated as a little kid. And that's not for sure any alumni that I've ever spoken to about these topics or about the morning verse or verses, for example, has ever felt like that. And I just wanted to give that example of how I specifically felt, you know, you show up in the day, your mom or dad, you, you take the bus, you drive up to the school and you go and you shake your teacher's hand and you're still kind of just waking up as a little body, you know, in the room and in the space. And when all of the kids are saying this together, especially when you're talking about the limbs and really feeling I really thought about my limbs and it brings you into your body that you're going to be working with and learning with the rest of the day. So I just wanted to give that as an example. Yes, that's exactly a really good example because it really is simply, as I said earlier, you stand together, you tall and straight, there's a moment of quiet, you look out the window because you're talking about the sun with loving light and your soul within and you say the verse together and there's no, um, there's no instruction about it. There's no pay attention to that. There's no extra emphasis on I give reverence, oh God. There's none of that kind of feeling that you may experience in a church or in a synagogue, etc. It's simply a verse of gratitude. I want to just read a couple of sentences from the middle school one because it's particularly nice. It also begins with looking out into the world. I look into the world in which the sun is shining, in which the stars are gleaming, where stones and stillness lie. I look into the soul that lives within my being. The world creator weaves in sunlight and in soul light, in world space there without, in soul depths here within. And then it goes on in the same way, asking for strength and grace and skill for learning and for work from the creator spirit. But I think the important thing in this is really the really clear, simple matter of fact, no explanation given even in the middle school or the high school that you are looking out into the world where something's going on and you're looking into your soul where something's going on and you're realizing that for learning and for work, that stream of in and out has to come into play. So I guess I can ask you, is that religious? Maybe. And is this a prayer? Yes, maybe. And is it simply a verse? Also, yes, maybe. But there is no religion instruction. It is simply recognizing that the human being and the child have a spiritual content. Yeah, what I'm hearing is, you know, you're delivering this 
with the students, kind of here it is and take it for what you get from it. Children within Waldorf schools that come from every kind of background, culture, and system of belief. So a child that is coming from a Christian family, a Catholic family, is, has an understanding or relationship with that based off their home life and where they're coming from. Uh, a Muslim child may have a relationship with that terminology are using based off their home life or their belief system at, at home that where they're coming from. So in that sense, it's inclusive. I mean, I don't know that I really conceptualized this or understood this in the lower school or the upper school, but I love what you're describing now, which is this kind of looking outward and looking inward. It almost seems like this kind of flow of, of life really, and kind of, it feels very full, I guess. Yeah. I, I sort of think of these verses really as a seed that nothing conceptual or explanatory is given to the child, but there is a seed and an example of a grown-up who's seeing really what the child already knows. They already know that they are, they have an inner life. And very often it's not recognized actually. And they already know that the world is full of wonder and beauty and there's something more behind every little stone that they see. So this is just the little seed planted that they may or may not take up later. It may or may not ref reflect in any other way in their life. And it's simply given as that. The same, there is the blessing before meals. Again, it's a simple uh, expression of gratitude for the, the food that we eat. And somehow that makes the food more nourishing. And again, it is said simply, often it's a song. Can I say the one that yeah, we've been I've forgotten using? it. I, yeah. So right now we're saying, um, Earth who gives to us this food, Sun who makes it ripe and good, dearest Earth and dearest Sun will not forget what you have done. Blessings on the meal. And the way I see it, like you said, there's kind of no God reference there. And there are verses you could use one that at home that references yes. God if you wanted to. We like that one because um, you know what what we wanted really was to create like you're talking about really a reverence at the table and the way we see that in our family is for the food um, and recognizing. I mean, we obviously live now really near the biodynamic farm and getting all this wonderful food. So Jasper also sees that process. But when we come to the table, we are using that as or as an as an example in the classroom. The students are sitting down and getting. Um, that reverence kind of for the food that they're going to eat, but in my mind also for the company that we're having around us, you know, we're sitting down all together at the table at the same time. And that is how snack and lunch happen in the classroom as well. All the students are eating at the same time and um, you're, I guess, expressing kind of reverence for the moment. At, yeah, at reverence and gratitude. And again, it's a little seed. You know, really the aim of Waldorf education is to give growing human beings the opportunity to become free-thinking individuals, not free-thinking Christian individuals, and not free-thinking Jewish individuals, and not free-thinking Muslim or Hindu individuals, but really free-thinking individuals who have a responsibility to each other and to the earth. Yeah. And just to elaborate on that a little bit, if you are um, a Christian family, a Jewish family or a Muslim family, you could um, in the homeschool uh, setting also articulate some of, use some of that God or your own terminology um, to facilitate the belief system that you have going on in your home. And to that point as well, uh, in the last episode, when I spoke with Dr. Mary Goral about 
Waldorf public schools, that terminology isn't there at all. It's completely absent. There isn't even, I mean, in most instances, some instances, there's um, uh, using the terminology, the universe instead of God. Um, And some, it's not there at all. So really there's a kind of a spectrum of how this really can be done in the classroom. And that's one of the things that Steiner, I guess, brought to the table when he created Waldorf Education is he wanted this to be an education to serve children to serve the world really, uh, in a way that was adaptable. So in that sense, like I said, if you're in, in the homeschool setting, you could really adapt some of those qualities to serve your beliefs. And, uh, like I said, in the Waldorf public school setting, this terminology wouldn't be there at all. Yes. And when I am speaking about it's not Christian, Jewish, etc., I'm not meaning to be negative about any formal religion oh, either. Yeah. It's more, Um, The basis of this, of course, any spiritual belief, any spiritual path, anything that shows the world is more than simply what you can touch and see with your five senses is nourishing to the child. I'm just focusing here on the universal qualities of all religions. And from that point of view, going back to the very first question, I would say, yes, Waldorf education is religious. If you take that narrow, if you take that description of religion. Right. I do want to get a little more specific about um, Waldorf education, the association or confusion with religion. When I was uh, a child in school, I remember every year there would be the Christmas play. Well, and I, I always looked forward to it because it was so beautiful and to see which teacher was going to play each character every year. And as you mentioned with the verse, there was never any teaching around that, which is kind of interesting, you know, because if you go to um, uh, more like a Catholic school, you're going to talk about the themes in the plan. You're going to talk about all the, you know, meaning behind everything. And it's kind of interesting because in my memory, it kind of was like, here we are doing our, the block before leading up to the winter break. And then like that last day is like the Christmas play and then you leave. <laughs> so what I'm wondering is, is there, is there any significance to that with Waldorf education? And is there any association with Christ since it's a Christmas play? Um, yes, so I guess that's the third aspect of that question, are Waldorf schools religious? Because I I wonder, I suspect that means sometimes, are Waldorf schools Christian? I don't think anybody's worried about, are they Muslim? I think that question really means, will my child be taught Christianity in some way? And I come from a Jewish family, for example. You specifically well, actually, I actually came do. From the, I yes. do, but I didn't mean it personally, but <laughs> right. I, I do in this, uh, actually. So the Christmas plays and Anthroposophy and Christ, that's a very complicated question because, put it this way, uh, when Steiner was giving his description of the evolution of human consciousness, starting on which the whole curriculum is based, starting from the kind of consciousness that human beings may have that relate to the fairy tales, going all the way up to the kind of consciousness that we would have with the laws and the judgment and the form that the Romans had, for instance. So going through the whole period of history with the development of consciousness from tribal family to what we're aiming for in our age of individuals, separate from all of that, able to make their own decisions. He talks about a time in history way back that he actually calls the turning point of time. And that is the moment of the incarnation or the birth of Christ. The way he sees it. The way, yes, of course, the way he sees it in his description of the evolution of humanity. 
And this doesn't mean Jesus Christ that you may hear about in church. This really is a description of the time in history where human consciousness changed from or was given the possibility to develop towards that individuality separate from the dogma and the rules and the doctrine of the older religions. It was a moment where love, for instance, which he kind of equates with Christ, became the guiding force in human creativity and growth, where each individual could access the spiritual or the truth in the world without the mediation of a priest or a rabbi or a guru. So it's separate from all Christian religions, but there is a feeling of, there is an emphasis on this new force, this new love quality that came into the development of human beings. So in a Waldorf school, each teacher may or may not live their life by that, subscribe to that, use that as their meditation. That's not a requirement, but somehow it is at the heart of a lot of anthroposophic thought. So the Christmas play, again, the shepherd's play, it's a simple shepherd's play in many Waldorf schools is done by the teachers or often community members as a gift to the community. And again, it's just presented as a simple universal story of humankind. Yes, and on a surface level, it's the simple story of the birth of Jesus in the stable. But it's an ancient play, medieval ancient play coming from... Oberu for a little town in the Danube, I think, I can't remember exactly, that was handed on from generation to generation. And because it's an ancient oh, medieval play, it has those themes a little bit like a fairy tale in it. There are the shepherds who are universally representing the heart forces, simple shepherds singing, sleeping outside, completely full of wonder. They've heard that this child is born who may represent something new in the world and off they go with their little gifts. So on a deeper level, it's symbolizing that universal quality. Then there are the, again, the universal qualities of a greedy innkeeper who doesn't allow them in and the simple kindness of an innkeeper who gives them a, a stable to sleep in. There is the tableau representation of the birth with an angel and a star showing this incarnation of every human child being born in a loving family. There's a family going to pay taxes, dealing with the real world, dealing with what Caesar wants in the world. So that is the inner gesture of how the teachers present the play to the children. It's not presented as religious instruction. It's presented as this universal picture of human beings and the reverence and gratitude one may have for the birth of every child. And of course, it is a Christmas Christian story. So again, as you said, people take it one way or another, and it's not required that you come and see it, but it's usually got a lot of humor and the, and it's the teachers in the school. Plan. And it's Part your teacher being that. Mary and your teacher being a shepherd. Um, so just for those listening, I feel like some of the references we just made, we're kind of assuming that you've listened to all the other episodes in this season. So just to clarify, um, who we're speaking about, Rudolf Steiner, he's the founder of Waldorf Education. Um, he founded Waldorf Education for uh, essentially 
the Waldorf Astoria cigarette factory, the workers' children, essentially, with the factory owner, Emil Malt. He founded the school. But Rudolf Steiner had belief systems around many things in the world. So the way I envision it, and you can tell me if I'm inaccurate in this, Glenn, is it's sort of like a tree and the different things that he had thoughts on, because many people came to him and said, you know, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And um, Waldorf education was his I guess, insights on education and biodynamic farming, um, as we know it, is what he developed about farming. So do you see his viewpoints about Christ, I guess, and that whole what you'd kind of just described? Is that kind of like a branch on that tree? Or is it more like at the center? I would say for me, it is the center. And I acknowledge that different Waldorf teachers and different people working out of anthroposophy would would have a different center. It's not required to be a Waldorf teacher that you delve into that picture of his human evolution, because there's much that he gave about the development of children and the curriculum and what's appropriate when. Many, many, many conversations and lectures and talks and conversations with the faculty of the early Waldorf school that don't refer to this at all. So, each teacher will have their own spiritual path and striving and how to find that center in themselves that can live with love and compassion in our current world. And you actually don't know where every teacher is because it's every teacher's personal spiritual striving is not, you see right away, it's not on the surface. They are working as Waldorf teachers in the school with reverence for each child, with a question in their heart for each child of who is this being? Who is this child? Who are they going to develop into? How can I... There's another verse that the teachers work with that has to do with the job of the teacher is to remove hindrances so that that child can develop into who they need to become. So that's another whole quality of the teacher's role is meeting each child in that kind of way and their personal striving and whether they, what the content of their meditation or prayer is, may not be apparent. You may never know that your teacher has that inequality or not because they're not teaching it and they're not showing it and it's not part of their job. So we've, at the beginning of this episode, we asked the question, are Waldorf schools religious? And the answer to that question is no, but perhaps yes. So it depends on how you're categorizing uh, religion per se, or even the terms that are associated with it. Um, we may use some of those terms or words to describe uh, what we are trying to, I guess, cultivate within the child. We talked about reverence, devotion, kindness, caring, compassion, gratitude. Um, and the other thing we actually haven't touched on or mentioned is, well, maybe once you mentioned, is how the whole goal of Waldorf education is to create an adult at the end of this educational path who is free thinking and independent thinking. That's what Steiner really felt the time needed. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to kind of speak to in terms of just kind of clarifying and, and being clear with parents what, what we've discussed today? Well, I guess it's really going to be up to each parent whether the Waldorf School is going to meet what they are looking for in their child. And I would say that 
our modern world, which as we go about our daily busy lives, rushing from one thing to another, in an unconscious way is so steeped in the material. I don't even want to say materialism because that's another loaded word, but really the we are all rushing to buy things and to have things and to give our ch children the best and to take them to these lessons and those lessons. And we forget that the time of sitting really outside by yourself as a young child is probably the biggest religious experience a child could have. So whether it's a Waldorf school or not, we have to step back a little bit and think about really what does life want? How does life grow? What nurtures life in the child so that they can become a strong, healthy adult? And a lot of that has to do with allowing them to remain in touch with the natural world and the beauty that they are born with and not rushing them off their feet with all the good things we want our children to have as parents. I, uh, I just want to kind of come back to this as an example, associating Waldorf education with religion, how most of us associate religion, uh, well, maybe not most, but many people associate re religion with doctrine and dogma, which is interesting because that is so separate from what kind of Steiner was trying to help people find them, their spiritual selves in was something separate from that. I like how Theo Groh in the episode that he spoke about Rudolf Steiner described how he wanted to have an avenue for people to pursue uh, spiritual knowledge that was on their own. Like they were kind of divine enough to really pursue that themselves. And that's kind of interesting that, you know, we associate religion with dogma and, um, you know, this rigor of like rules, you know, if that makes any sense. And that's kind of what Steiner almost was not wanting to do. And somehow there's this confusion about religion and Waldorf education. Right. And that's, you know, that's interesting that we divine enough. And, and that really is the point. And that relates to my picture of the way Steiner describes the Christ, and that is we all are divine enough. We all have a bit of that Christ being in us, whether you're Christian or not, mm -hmm. whether you believe in it or not, we all, with that change in consciousness, we all are divine enough. And just to be clear, you know, in our description of religion as dogma and doctrine, not all religions are like that. And mm -hmm we are describing the sort of narrowest version of religion, the ones that have fought crusades and killed people in the name of their religion, on every kind of religion has done that. But I think in our age now with this, we are each divine enough, there are many of the, the standard religions that are moving towards that as well, within their context, of course, aside from anthroposophy. Right. I just want to come back to talking about the teachers once more to, I guess, emphasize some of these terms we're using are kind of loaded and associated with a religion, which is where there, this kind of confusion with religion and Waldorf education comes in. We're talking about saying, you know, the human being is divine enough, or that we're acknowledging that there is something divine within the human being. That I think is the quality we're trying to, or you are trying to articulate that the teacher is coming from when teaching 
the students is acknowledging, and we are using the word divine, but other teachers may use other words, that there's some special, unique quality about each child. You know, that I love that. I gave that example of Arthur Auer saying that I was spirited. You know, he wasn't looking at me like, oh, this is the most annoying kid in my class. Like, how do I deal with her? Like, how do I keep her like in check in her chair, you know, in the day? He saw me as spirited and well, what is, what is it that Ashley's bringing to the table? And some teachers may use that uh, word divine to describe that. And some may use another word. Um, so I have two last questions for you here. I guess one is, do you know, full disclosure, I was so nervous to tell you that I'd started the whole Waldorfie project and podcast, and you've been such a fantastic guest, but I tell you why I was so nervous to ask you questions about anthroposophy. It's because I feel like in some way I was almost offending you by asking questions because I was in many ways being curious as an adult, which is of course the goal of Waldorf education to create a free independent thinking adult. That part of what I'm hoping to do in this project is in a way, I, I mean, I'm hoping to, I guess, challenge some of what you may say, and that's an intimidating thing to do or, or question it. And I think that that is the position that a lot of parents are in who are either interested in pursuing Waldorf homeschooling or have their child in a Waldorf charter school, or definitely who have their child in a a private Waldorf school. So my parents decided to send my sister's knife to a Waldorf school and my teacher, Arthur, he'd already had, I mean, maybe 20 years experience by the time I was in first grade and was so knowledgeable and so great. And I think my parents probably were pretty intimidated to ask him questions about some of these things we're talking about. Um, and the way I see it, I hope that parents feel inspired after this episode to talk to other parents or talk to their teachers about some of these things. What would you say, are there any ways that you would suggest a parent kind of going about approaching a teacher with a question or um, inquiring about some of this stuff with a teacher? Because of course, no parent wants to annoy their teacher and no teacher wants parents like clamoring or what's this, what's that, you know? So how do you, how would you say to go about kind of approaching your teacher with some of these thoughts? You've been in both positions. You've been a parent and a, and teacher. a teacher. And I have questioned as a teacher, I have questioned, is this what I should be doing? Steiner would lived a hundred years ago. Is it still appropriate? I have questioned that. And as a parent, I had two children, and sometimes they had teachers that I didn't feel comfortable talking to. So I think it boils down to really that the teachers are also just human beings, and they have their strengths and weaknesses. So I think for parents to approach their teachers, they just have to remember their teachers are also human beings who have their vulnerabilities and may or may not feel that they have the words to describe some of these kind of questions. So they could approach their individual teacher if they feel comfortable. They could ask the school. And I think the only advice I have is just talk to each other as human beings. And I would give the same advice to teachers. The parents may know more than you do and find out what they know. And it's a coming together. There isn't one answer. Steiner for all his wisdom and what he gave, didn't read Steiner. He came up with it on his own. Part of this path is to see what we're saying, is that divine enough or spirit or specialness in each person, including the parents and including the teacher, and to see that in each other and have a real conversation. So there isn't one question to ask your 
teacher that may make them feel okay to talk to you, they don't necessarily know more than you as a parent. And together you have to form a picture of who the child is, who really doesn't belong to the parent or the teacher. The child is its own being. And the parent has one picture and one responsibility, and the teacher has another picture and one responsibility, and together they can nurture that child. And I guess you could say the school probably has a a picture as well. Yes. And my last question, this is such a tough thing. I always throw these massive questions for people right at the end and try to get them to come up with something, especially this one. So because you've already been on the podcast, I may have asked you in an earlier episode, resources or things you would suggest for parents. Let's go a little bit deeper. Uh, We've talked about Rudolf Steiner and the study of anthroposophy, the way that associates with religion today or Waldorf education. I'm interested in how do you see anthroposophy at all being able to influence parents in the home or parenting? Well, anthroposophy is a huge thing. So I can't say anthroposophy could help the parents in the home in this way or that way. It's like saying, you know, any spiritual path or spiritual, yeah, any spiritual path or striving, how's that going to influence the parents in their home? Of course it is, because the parents will be looking at their child differently. I would say... Anthroposophy, just like any other spiritual striving and spiritual path, will inform the parent's ability to see their child as something that is beyond a future workforce person, but as a creative individual in the world. Seeing them as something more yeah, than just maybe even what's in front of them. I feel like I've gathered from Waldorf Education, from speaking to so many teachers this summer, that it's a good practice and hard to do, releasing your own feelings and opinions and judgments on who you want your child to be is a very challenging thing. I feel like even now my son's only 15 months old and he's very fast. So I think, well, maybe he'll be a soccer player or he'll play tennis or he'll do this. And it's really, it's really hard to totally break yourself from what you want for your child. You know, when my children were little, I didn't even know being a circus performer was a possibility. And my son is a street performer. <laughs> it can go it can go anyway, really. Well, thank you so much for covering this big topic. And you. I have to just say that this is my view of this big topic, and it may be very different for other Waldorf teachers. Totally. You were just the one that was brave enough to come in and speak about it. So thank you so much for having that courage, I guess, because like you said, I think one of the reasons, I mean, you were really the only person I asked because I really wanted you to talk about this topic, but um, just speaking about it with other teachers, I know both of us have actually talked about this topic with other teachers in our community and everyone's kind of a little hesitant. And I do think that it's because different teachers really see this a little bit differently, which is why I would encourage parents to talk to their teacher in their school about many of the themes we talked about today. Uh, And yeah, so I think it's courageous for you to come on and share your, your interpretation. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening in everybody. Today's episode is actually the last episode of season one, and it has been such a joy to be bringing this content to you through this medium. There is going to be a season two coming up very soon. I'm hoping to release the first episode of season two, which is going to be 201, two weeks from today, the day that this episode uh, comes out. 
And I can't tell you what the first episode topic is going to be because we're going to release a little trailer talking all about the theme of season two and talking about the guests of season two. A lot of those guests are guests that you requested and a lot of the topics are topics that you requested uh, to be in the next season. So I'm really excited to be bringing that to you. Stay tuned for this trailer for season two. The trailer is probably not going to be released on a Tuesday. It's possible that it's going to be released kind of on a random day in between now and two weeks from now when the first episode of season two will come out because I want to make sure I get it to you and I'm just not sure when it's going to be done. So stay tuned for that. As always, I would love to hear your feedback on this episode, on this first season of episodes, or on any of my content. You can always send me a message at info.waldorfie at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show notes page for this episode. You can find the show notes page for this episode at waldorfie.com forward slash Waldorf and religion. I would so appreciate it if you would rate and review Waldorfie on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would be wonderful if you could share Waldorfie with your colleagues, friends, and family too. Sharing on any social media platform is a great way to do this and spread the word about Waldorfie. I hope you'll connect with me on social media. I'm at B Waldorfie. I'm active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Although we do have a private uh, Facebook group for parents and a separate private Facebook group for alumni if you're interested. We're also going to be launching a Patreon page where you can support Waldorfie, the podcast, and support all of our content and get uh, some interesting bonus goodies for you as a fan. So I hope you'll stay tuned for more info about that. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Be well. Be well.